Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are love and that in your love um, you were concerned with our wandering and that you pursued us. You sent your son to, to go to great lengths, even into the coldness of the grave, that you might bring us back to yourself, you might reconcile us back to yourself, despite our, despite our lack of desire to do so on our own. You made us willing. You made us desirous of this because you showed us how much you love us. So we pray that your love for us would continue to, to stir our affections, would continue to be the motivation for our, our turning back to you. We pray that your spirit would be present in this place, filling us, renewing us as we hear your word preached, as we eat at the table of the king. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we've, we've come to the end of the book of James. There are just two verses for us to consider this morning. And in them, James appears to be explaining himself. The letter he has written for us is bold and it's blunt. It's full of warnings and commands. And in it, James pulls no punches. What's your life? James asks at one point. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. In chapter two, he acknowledges, you believe that God is one, well, you do well. Then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. In chapter four, he goes on in an extended tirade. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Adulterers, a mist that appears for a little while. No better than demons. At least they shudder in their belief. There's much in James's letter that is, that's difficult to receive. And yet, throughout his letter, running parallel to these, these hard words is a, a tenderness in James that's expressed in the way that he addresses the very audience he calls out for their sin. He refers to them as his brothers and sisters. There's a family connection that persists despite his anger with their behavior. In fact, it's this family connection that informs his anger. James loved the people to whom he wrote. He makes that explicit throughout his letter, calling his readers not just brothers and sisters, but oftentimes beloved brothers and sisters. And to be clear, James was not writing to biological brothers and sisters. 
but to people who had become his, his spiritual brothers and sisters, his spiritual family by virtue of their relationship to Christ. One of the primary images of salvation is that of adoption in the Bible. God has adopted us. Jesus Christ, God's true son, was disowned at the cross in order that we might be adopted. He was treated like the rebellious child we are in order that we might be treated like the obedient one that he is. And by virtue of his rejection, we have been accepted as children of the living God in heaven, sons and daughters of our Father. You know, in his resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene, after having been raised from the dead, Jesus told Mary something that's incredible. He told Mary, don't hold on to me, because I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and, and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Hear that? My Father, your Father. My God, your God. There is, there is a, a rearrangement, a familial relationship that happens for us in Jesus Christ. For those who have had a, a father who was absent, angry, abusive, who, who loved you so long as you didn't cross or contradict him, Jesus is telling you, God's your father as well. A true father, a loving father. Your anger and disappointment about your earthly father proves your desire for something different, something better, someone more like a true father. Through Jesus, we receive one. His Father, our Father. His God, our God. And more than that, we receive brothers and sisters in each other. In, in Matthew 12, there's this story about Jesus teaching inside a home when someone came and whispered in his ear that his, his mother and his brothers and sisters are outside waiting for him. Right? They were having trouble getting into the standing room only house and they were waiting outside. But Jesus responded in that moment by redefining family for the Christian. Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, he asked, and pointing to the people around him who followed him, who supported him, who, who believed him, who trusted him. Jesus said, these are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He is re redefining family around himself. His blood is the blood that binds us together as family. His was the blood that also bound James to the people he addressed in such harsh tones. And these two things may seem as though they oppose one another, right? This aggression and tenderness, the love and the criticism. But in reality, the, the one flows from the other for James. And this is what James is trying to point out in the closing verses of his letter. He has chosen challenging words precisely because he loves the people to whom he writes, his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Correction was his intention. His goal was to make them whole, my brothers and sisters. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
In these two verses, James begins by addressing the person who's wandering from the truth. And he illuminates for such a person's for such a person, the motivations of the one who challenges, even rebukes them. A motivation, the goal is to save the soul from death, to cover a multitude of sins. In this way, James is is asking for your grace. He's asking for grace from his reader as they endure his many rebukes, his harsh words, because he has their and our best interest at hand. Our elders have created protocols for the ways in which we uh, speak to one another and relate to one another in our our meetings and our interactions. Things like speak for yourself, be candid, engage fully, right? And they're they're behaviors that help us to function at a high level and, and they've proved helpful for us. But one of the most important and one of the most appealed to protocol that we have is to assume positive intent. We might say some hard things to one another. We might say some things that sound terrible on the surface. And yet we appeal to one another to assume that our intent is positive. It's well-meaning. This is what James is doing here. He's said some things to us throughout this letter. But he's done so in order to prick our consciences, to recover us from our wandering our souls from the sin we have courted and kept alive. As our brother, he was obligated to speak in such a way to us. And as brothers and sisters of one another, bound together by the blood of Christ, children of a common father, recipients of the same spirit, participants in one baptism, partakers of one cup, one bread, James is telling us that we have the same obligation towards one another. If we love each other, if we love each other, then our love will include confrontation. For love lacking in confrontation is not true love. Love without confrontation is more akin to hatred than it is to love. For it's cruel to watch the one you love harm themselves and say nothing about it. The only love present in that sort of relationship is self-love because silence seeks only to preserve a person's good opinion of you. But a love that confronts sets a, a beloved's health above their opinion of you. Remaining silent when a brother or sister is blindly wandering from the faith is not love. It actually implicates the silent one in the death of their friend and neighbor. The silent one becomes responsible for the death of the ones they claim to love. Now, St. Gregory the Great writes in his book of pastoral rule that those who recognize the evil of their neighbors but remain silent withdraw, so to speak, medicine from visible wounds and become the authors of death and that they do not cure the poison when they can. James has spent his letter fulfilling his love with hard words. He has cleared himself of any guilt for our wanderings, even as he has sought to cure the poison in our souls with the balm of confrontation. We're called to do the same, to call each other out for the ways in which we are wandering from the truth. But we must not forget that in these two verses, James begins by addressing the people who are wandering, right? Not the people who are calling them out. 
He begins with, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's addressing the wanderers and only commends the act of calling out through implication by pointing to the goodness that it's intended to produce. His main point, therefore, is not just that we should be calling one another out, but that we should be inviting each other to do so. With the understanding that love demands confrontation, we should be granting permission to one another to call out sin that we cannot see in ourselves. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes that any two Christians with nothing else but a common faith in Christ can have a robust friendship helping each other on their journey toward the new creation as well as doing ministry together in this world. And he then asks, how can they do that? And his answer is that they do it through spiritual transparency. Christian friends, he writes, are not only honest, are not only to honestly confess their own sins to each other, but they are to lovingly point out their friend's sins if he or she is blind to them. You should give your Christian friends hunting licenses to confront you if you are failing to live in line with your commitments. Keller says we should be giving each other hunting licenses permission to, to poke and prod into our lives, permission to express concern about the ways we speak or joke or about the, the content we're consuming or about either the neglect or the indulgence of our bodies. There are a myriad of ways in which we wander from the truth of the gospel, but they all start small. There's this great line from the band Nickel Creek song, Reasons Why. They write, where am I today? I wish I knew, because looking around, there's no sign of you. I don't remember one jump or one leap, just quiet steps away from your lead. That's how a departure most often happens, through a, through a quiet step, silent step in the opposite direction towards someone or something else. And it's common knowledge that it's easier to pull up a sapling than it is to cut down a mighty oak. So I say to you, and I, I invite you to say to each other, Please tell me if you see a sapling taking root in my life. I'm giving you permission. I'd ask you to, to give each other the same permission. Hunting licenses to fulfill our mutual love for one another through confrontation. I'd rather we pull up saplings and have to uproot a mighty oak. But there is one thing that's necessary for us to remember as we, as we think about calling one another out, issuing hunting licenses to one another. And this one thing is that the goal of all this activity is the covering of sin. James is not commending the activity of covering up sin, right? as in hiding it or concealing it, excusing it. When the Bible talks about the, the covering of sins, it means the removal of sin, the forgiveness of sin, the elimination of guilt associated with sin. What James is picturing here, therefore, is the restoration of the Christian in the grace of Jesus Christ. The goal of our confrontation is to lead one another back to the cross. It's not condemnation not self-justifying judgment. Our confrontation is an invitation to return to the cross where we are confronted at once with an image of our guilt and of our grace. The cross is simultaneously a curse and a comfort. 
It's ironic that the cross should be something we, we hang in our churches and around our necks. It was a means of the most brutal execution in the Roman world. The cross was so offensive that the philosopher Cicero said the word itself shouldn't even be spoken by a Roman. It's a sign of our guilt, a reminder of what we deserve because of our sins, whether saplings or mature oaks. We deserve cursing, death, rejection. And yet Jesus died on a cross. And so he transformed a symbol of guilt into an emblem of grace. He died on the cross for our sin. He offered himself as a sacrifice in our stead. And it was appropriate that he died on a cross for he died with his arms wide open to you. Which is exactly how God now greets us. His arms wide open to embrace us. Not because we are sinless, but because Jesus was. And through him we are forgiven. The death of Jesus, therefore, covers our sin. It removes the stain of sin. That bare tree became the fountain of forgiveness. His death and subsequent resurrection means our guilt is gone. If we're going to cover each other's sins in love, then we must not present just one half of the cross. It cannot be only guilt and condemnation, the bitterness and offense of the cross, but the sweetness of the cross must be presented at the same time. If you're wandering from God, courting some sin that's only robbing you of peace and health, come to the cross. Look at what your sin cost the Son of God. And remember that his arms were stretched wide to embrace you even as he breathed his last. Let that grace be the joy of your life, the motivation you need for a life of penitence and holiness. Let the love of Jesus humble you to hear and receive the calls of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we together appear before our Father one day with clean hands and pure hearts, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and kept clean through a love that was true enough to come confront one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.